It's been four years since I made the presidential podcast, and not a day has gone by that I don't think about it. The research I did, the lessons I learned, the stories I told, they stuck with me, and they also planted in me a new way of seeing the realities that continue to unfold around us. Recently, there were images in the news of the D.C. National Guard on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. They were in camouflage, and they were wearing body armor, and they were lined up as if to block protesters from approaching the monument. They were striking, eerie photos. Here's a site dedicated to the president who freed enslaved Americans, a site famous for literally providing a platform for civil rights protests, and it's being guarded from citizens. It left me wondering about the history of the monument, how exactly it was that the Lincoln Memorial came to be not just an American symbol of equality, but an actual, active, and central site where we, the people, continue the work, as Abraham Lincoln put it, to bind up the nation's wounds. It turns out it took an act of leadership in 1939 to enshrine the Lincoln Memorial with that purpose. It took the leadership of a singer, a first lady, a president, and a citizenry all together. I'd like to tell you that story. I'm Lillian Cunningham with The Washington Post, and this is a special episode of Presidential. Resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. What the country was still reeling from an economic depression, the polio epidemic, a deadly flu, a world war, and persistent racial discrimination. In the midst of all this turmoil, an incredible singer named Marian Anderson had returned from Europe. She was a Black American woman who had been born in South Philadelphia, and she was famous for her powerful, low, contralto voice. She was coming back from performing on tour at some of Europe's most famous opera houses and concert halls. Marian Anderson has sung at the White House and before kings and queens. She has received awards from civic foundations, nations, universities. She was, of course, a major, major figure. I spoke with Malefi Kediasanti. He's the chair of the African American Studies Department at Temple University and a renowned scholar on African American history. There is no other um, popular singer with 
a little exception, the great Paul Robeson, who was in her league at this moment in terms of uh, rising to uh, such a prominence on the stage. For a couple years in a row, Marian Anderson had performed an annual concert in Washington, D.C. that was hosted by Howard University. And each year, the crowds to hear her sing grew larger and larger, so that now, in 1939, Howard University needed to find a bigger space to hold their upcoming spring concert for her. The largest venue in D.C. at that time was Constitution Hall. It's this really grand space near the National Mall, and it's run by the DAR, or the Daughters of the American Revolution. The DAR is an organization of women whose family lines date all the way back to the early days of the United States. Howard University asked them if they could reserve this venue. But the DAR said no. The Daughters of of the American Revolution had uh, a contract that didn't allow them to have uh, African Americans uh, perform in the Constitution Hall. I mean, this is really shows you really part of the time. I mean, that uh, a hall with the name Constitution uh, would be used to bar an African-American. The discrimination, of course, wasn't new. It's actually part of why she had spent so much time touring Europe. Venues had been a lot more welcoming to her there than in her own country. Still, by 1939, it seemed things might be different. Her star power had risen, she had performed for the Roosevelts at the White House, and it was now commonly known that here was one of the greatest singers to walk the earth. The famous Italian conductor Arturo Toscanini said that Marian Anderson had the type of incredible voice you only hear once in a hundred years. And so um, the fact that she was denied, I mean, how could you deny someone as magnificent as Marian Anderson? And I think that that refusal itself was like, wow. I mean, well, if Marian Anderson cannot sing uh, in Constitution Hall, who can? First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt was a member of the DAR. But she had never really been involved in the organization. It was one of those things that sort of went along with being First Lady at the time. Well, she wasn't in it for long. She sent a telegram to Howard University on February 26, 1939, expressing her sympathy and her outrage at the decision. Then, she publicly resigned from the organization the same day. In her letter of resignation to the head of the DAR, she wrote, and this is a quote, I am in complete disagreement with the attitude taken in refusing Constitution Hall to a great artist. And then she went on, and this is the really powerful line, quote, You had an opportunity to lead in an enlightened way, and it seems to me that your organization has failed. 
The news of Marian Anderson's denial and of the First Lady's resignation spread across the country. In the meantime, Eleanor Roosevelt and one of her husband's most prominent cabinet members, Harold Ikes, who was the Secretary of the Interior, they set to work figuring out how to host a major public concert. The question was, where could they have Marian Anderson sing? Picture the National Mall. On the eastern end of it, you've got the Capitol building where Congress meets. Then you have a grass corridor that stretches all the way to the Washington Monument. Then on the other side of that, you have the long reflecting pool. Then finally, at the westernmost part of the mall, right before you hit the Potomac River, there is the Lincoln Memorial. It looks like an enormous marble temple. It's 190 feet long, and it has 36 massive columns that surround a giant statue of Abraham Lincoln. He sits there in stone, staring directly out at the expanse of the nation's capital and all of its symbols of power. For the Lincoln episode of Presidential, I came here at sunrise to watch the city wake up. This time, I'm back on an overcast day with my colleague Philip Kennicott, who is the Post's architecture critic. Do you have any sense that um, when the Lincoln Memorial was being designed, that there was the intention that some of these would serve as spaces for protests and public gatherings, or that kind of surprised everyone as the evolution of what a place like the Lincoln Memorial would become? I think that emerged organically, and that's probably a mark of the success of the memorial, that people took possession of it, and they made it mean what they wanted it to mean. These steps have so much history. I mean, this is the great stage for American democracy, especially that part of American democracy, which is challenging the conscience of the country to live up to its original ideals. I can't believe I got winded going up the steps. I need to get to the gym. (laughs) In March 1939, when the Roosevelt administration was looking for a public spot where they could hold a concert for Marian Anderson, the idea emerged to use the grand steps of this memorial. The monument had only been unveiled in 1922, pretty recently. And to date, it was just that, a monument. Still, embedded in its very design was the idea of unity and of equality and justice. And even though the idea of reunification when this memorial was built was a very problematic idea, given the state... Um, of affairs when it came to, to racial relations, given when it came to Jim Crow, when it came to the still unfinished project of finishing the work that was begun in the Civil War. Even despite all of that, I like to think 
that there are ideals embedded in this memorial that are still valid and still unfulfilled and that still compel us to consider how we need to live as citizens in this country. Two of Lincoln's most famous speeches are carved into the side walls of the chamber here. There's the Gettysburg Address, and then part of the speech he gave at his second inauguration. And I'll read just a couple lines that are inscribed here. There's the Gettysburg Address line, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. And then there's also the line from the second inaugural, with malice toward none, with charity for all. So I I think that uh, monuments are important in, in every epoch and among all people and all nations, but they're only important to the degree that they are able to reinforce the highest virtues. This monument, the Lincoln Memorial, was just the right place for Marian Anderson to sing. The First Lady and Harold Ikes took the idea to President Roosevelt. He agreed. His administration would hold a concert on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial for Marian Anderson, and it would take place Easter Sunday, April 9th, 1939. This uh, April the 9th was a very significant date because it, it was the 74th anniversary of the surrender of Robert Lee to Ulysses Grant. Uh, What the Roosevelt government was demonstrating was, yes, Lee had surrendered on April the 9th, but on April the 9th, we also are going to demonstrate the future of America. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. We're speaking to you from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in the nation's capital, from which point the National Broadcasting Company brings you a song recital by the gifted Marian Anderson, considered by music critics throughout the world as possessing a most outstanding contralto voice. This concert is presented under the auspices of Howard University of Washington, D.C. On Easter Sunday, 75,000 Americans of all races showed up in solidarity to hear Anderson sing. They were packed shoulder to shoulder, hip to hip, down the steps and around the reflecting pool. Marian Anderson stepped up to a cluster of those old-timey microphone stands. The massive columns of the Lincoln Memorial were rising up behind her. an anthem to America. She sang the words, Sweet Land of Liberty, 
despite the fact that her grandfather had been born enslaved and that he had only gained his freedom when Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. She sang these words despite the fact that she herself had been born in Philadelphia, home of the Liberty Bell and the writing of the Declaration of Independence and the signing of the Constitution. And yet she had been barred from having her voice heard at Constitution Hall. And by singing as of her first song, My Country Tis of Thee, she also indicated that African Americans were uh, truly in the line of uh, great American patriots. At Eleanor Roosevelt's urging, the concert was broadcast coast to coast, with millions of people tuning in across the country. It was actually the first live music event of its kind in the history of radio. And Marian Anderson just kept singing. chilly and a mostly gray day. She wore a long dress and a fur coat. But every so often, the sun would break through and it would shimmer on the reflecting pool. Then, of course, I went on to sing the spirituals, My Lord, What a Morning, for example, I understand was one of the songs that she sang. And, and this, of course, really grounded the Lincoln Monument Uh, as a monument where African people in America could feel a sense of pride and a sense of honor. She ended with the song, Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen, a hymn to the Black experience written in the days of slavery. This is very interesting because she was not really what you would call an activist, but this made her a civil rights icon. It it stamped her with the idea of resistance when, in effect, she was simply a person who had incredible talent and uh, wanted to perform. And it was this concert that cemented the Lincoln Memorial as a site for civil rights protest, as an active place to continue the struggle toward a more perfect union. The country was fortunate that Eleanor Roosevelt and, of course, Franklin Roosevelt uh, were quite committed to her being able to uh, sing anywhere she wanted to sing. And, and that's why I think one of the reasons, I mean, there were several, but uh, certainly one of the reasons that uh, Roosevelt was the catalyst for the change of the African-American community from being Republican 
to being democratic. The, 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 the Roosevelt's uh, presidency was a significant progressive movement for black people. And black people saw him as a friend to the progressive ideals uh, in the American uh, documents. And uh, the support of Marion Anderson uh, was part of this, I believe. Every president in U.S. history has been confronted with moments, like that of Marian Anderson. Moments that test our national unity and our division. Moments that test our commitment to liberty and justice. And every president has had the opportunity to use the platform of the White House and the power and the symbolism of the presidency to make a statement in those moments, a statement about what kind of country we ought to be, we want to be. Marian Anderson went on to be the first Black person of any gender from any country to sing on the stage at the Metropolitan Opera in New York. She also sang at the presidential inauguration of Dwight Eisenhower and she sang at the inauguration of John Kennedy. Then in 1963, she performed once again on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This time, she wasn't the only voice up there. It was August 28, 1963, the March on Washington. Martin Luther King stood on these same steps and looked out across an expanse of about 250,000 people who had come here to fight for civil rights. Black and white, men and women, religious and atheist. And one of those people listening to his speech from far back in the crowd was Doris Kearns Goodwin. She was a college student at the time, but she would eventually become one of the world's best-known scholars of Abraham Lincoln. So I remember carrying a sign that said Catholics, Jews, and Protestants for civil rights. Were you already interested in studying presidential history or, you know, did that moment help catalyze an interest for you? Or? When I came here in, in 1963, it was more just being a part of the civil rights movement as opposed to knowing that I was eventually going to study presidents. It was one of those thrilling moments when you know... I'm not sure you fully realize the movement is going to eventually produce a civil rights act and desegregation and voting rights, but you know that you're doing something as citizens that you can do. Do you remember like how far back you were? I was very far back, <laughs> yes. Oh, but you could hear. It was incredible. And somehow, maybe it was just the desire to hear and the crowd is there. And despite all the noise, you could hear what he was saying. So those words are indelibly imprinted in your mind from then on. When he was 15 years old, Martin Luther King had given a speech in which he talked about the power of Marian Anderson's performance in 1939. And now, as he stood on those steps himself, before a crowd of hundreds of thousands, he had her on his mind. In his I Have a Dream speech, he ad-libbed the words, 
This will be the day when all of God's children will be able to sing with new meaning, My country tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. Malefi Kede Asante was there in the crowd, too. He heard King's speech, and then, when King finished, he watched as Marian Anderson stepped once again, 24 years later, to a microphone. I had driven from Oklahoma all the way to Washington, D.C., and it was probably among uh, her last uh, really major performances. And it was, uh, in many ways, a molding and a shaping experience that would um, lend itself to my participation uh, in civil rights. And so the Lincoln Monument experience, uh, as it was probably for Marian Anderson, uh, for... Um, for, for me, was an extremely emotional one. Nearly 8 million people visit the Lincoln Memorial every year. That not only makes it the most visited memorial in D.C., which it is, but it makes it more visited than all of Yosemite National Park and all of the Grand Canyon. There's a quote that I love about Lincoln. It's by the 19th century writer Carl Sandburg. And one time he was giving a speech about Lincoln to Congress, and he said, this is a quote, Not often in the story of mankind does a man arrive on earth who is both steel and velvet, who is hard as rock and soft as drifting fog who holds in his heart and mind the paradox of terrible storm and peace, unspeakable and perfect. This, to me, is the face of Lincoln you see carved in stone at the top of those steps. But it's also the face of Marian Anderson and the face of Martin Luther King, It's the face of all the speakers and singers and activists, past, present, and future, who use this monument as the place to remind their country of its core values. I I think that the Lincoln Monument uh, will be always remembered as the most sacred uh, of the American monuments for... Uh, the iconic role that uh, it plays in the civil rights struggle. I, I, I think our history in this country is, is always laced with what I call the bitterness of, of sadness and, and the joy of happiness. I mean, those two things uh, continue to uh, showcase themselves in the resilience um, of a determined people and artists and performers such as uh, Marian Anderson. Many thanks to the experts who appeared on this episode, Malefi Kede Asante, 
Doris Kearns Goodwin, and Philip Kennicott. Thanks also to producer Bishop Sand and to the rest of the Washington Post audio team. Archival recordings are from the National Archives and Records Administration and from Critical Past. We'll be publishing more special episodes of Presidential, like this one, over the coming months. So keep an eye out on your podcast feed on WashingtonPost.com slash presidential, or find me on Twitter and Instagram for updates. It's really great to be back, and thank you so much for listening.